You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I remember a few years ago when these new anticoagulants came out, and I was a little bit nervous, to be honest. Anticoagulation is something we pharmacists thrive at. We've proven our value here time and time again. But here we are on the verge of phasing out a complicated drug that requires extensive monitoring and clinical oversight, not to mention countless interactions with food and medications. As newer agents become more readily used, would we as pharmacists lose some of our value? So join me and my co-host in this podcast as we talk to experts in this field and dive deep into clinical practice and talk about the beginning of a new era in anticoagulation. Welcome to Senior Rx Radio. My name is Jaron Stout. And I am Joanne Pio, and we are the new hosts of Senior Rx Radio. And right now we are in lovely Grapevine, Texas. It is excellent to be here. It is the 50th anniversary of ASCP, and it's so exciting to be here. One of the cool things about last night was just all the the homages they paid to all these different people who've been members for many, many years, all the past presidents and all the all the stuff and it was it's just great to be here at this time for this this uh, celebration so during our meeting we actually had dr sabiki and dr pogi present a session titled anticoagulation in 2019 exploring beyond warfarin where a lot of clinical points were addressed and i had so much fun it was entertaining but very educational and you actually started the session with a question. And the question was, what direct oral anticoagulant is preferred for the elderly population? So we have several different options as you guys presented. We have the Bigatran, Rivaroxaban, and Apixaban. So for our senior care pharmacists who missed out on all the fun, what direct oral anticoagulant is preferred for the geriatric population and what's the rationale behind this decision? So this was my question. I really um, wanted to pull the audience and see what agent they preferred for their patients that were geriatric. And overwhelmingly, the response was a Pixaban. And interestingly enough, nobody chose Dabigatran and 10% of people chose Rivaroxaban and nobody chose Adoxaban. So we had 90% of the people in the audience audience choose a Pixaban. I would agree with that. And I presented some really interesting real world data that looked at the different direct oral anticoags and showed that a Pixaban appeared to have a lower bleeding rate than the other agents, whereas actually Rivaroxaban appeared to have a higher bleeding. That's true. And I can also mimic to Elizabeth's point that a Pixaban is often the um, factor 10A inhibitor that a lot of the providers that I work with really reach for. And I think one of its appealing features, especially in elderly patients, is the fact that we don't have to renally dose adjust based on creatinine clearance, but based on age and weight and serum creatinine. And so it offers an additional option for them as opposed to using something like Rivaroxaban or Tabigatran or Adoxaban. So um, that's just to put in my two cents on that one. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm just going to give a little bit of background here because uh, just for the listeners out there, uh, I graduated from Midwestern University 2011 and Professor Pogi is a professor there and she was there when I was attending as well. So I do remember a lot of the stuff that she taught, but also I don't know if she remembers this, so I'm just going to give her a little story here. But I was on a rotation with Dr. Rainey and it was 2010. 
a very significant year in the world of anticoagulation, as you know. And she had me give a presentation about the rocket trial and uh, and uh, dibigatran, and um, it was my first time doing that type of presentation. And she specifically had you attend it because you were in the cardio world, and you grilled me with questions that I couldn't answer. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is my turn to come at you with some questions. Okay, uh, so I, I am up for the challenge. <laughs> right. I am ready to go. Let's hope we can find some answers for yes. some of these difficult questions. Okay, and I did send you some a lot of them, so I, I hope you understood the direction I was going on with them. But uh, what indication should raise a red flag for a pharmacist who does a chart review in a skilled nursing facility? Because obviously most of your residents are going to be geriatric. So what indication should raise a red flag when we're doing that? Sure. So I'll take this question and we'll save some of the harder ones for Elizabeth. <laughs> um, but I think um, any time that you have a patient who has atrial fibrillation or has a previous VTE, uh, whether it's DVT or P, is someone who you're definitely going to want to flag. But you also need to look at the med list itself. So sometimes these agents will be added on there and maybe we can't really figure out what the indication is. And it's especially important when they have other agents like aspirin or clopidogrel or some of the other um, agents that could increase your risk for bleeding. So I think um, not only indication, but also looking at the med list itself is going to be really important. Yes, very good. Very good answer. I'd like to add that I think you need to remember about renal and liver dysfunction. So when I think about these agents, um, you have to dose adjust with renal dysfunction. Um, Some of these agents shouldn't be used in patients with severe liver dysfunction, and we should really be using warfarin instead. So those are another two kind of clinical indications that I think would flag um, me to think about, hey, is this really appropriate for this patient? Right. And warfarin is the only one that really gives us a lot of dosing flexibility still. So that's the best option when that's required. Um, And so kind of the thing I was I was looking at earlier is the, the indication for PAD or and whatnot. So when when we use that, as soon as they turn 65, it gets a the, the the number needed to treat for harm drops significantly from 500 to 63. And I found that very fascinating. Um, and uh, what if, since that's the case, what if they're age 60 and we they have PVD and we start we start them on that do- that uh, that regimen of, of Zarelto. So how when is the cutoff? Do you think as soon as they turn 65, stop it? Or should is there more factors we should keep in mind? I think you may have already answered it. but So I think for some of our listeners, if they're not familiar, um, we're talking about the COMPASS study and really talking about the CAD-PAD indication for Zarelto or for Rivaroxaban. And I personally am not a fan of this indication at all. I think it provides a low-value, um, high-risk Um, care plan for our geriatric patients. And I presented why I feel that um, because of the high risk of bleeding that can happen with this particular agent. I think when you see clinicians using it, it's likely in patients that have severe CAD or PVD and they don't have any other options. And so as they get into this geriatric area of 65 plus, I think you need to think about other risk factors that they have for bleeding. And then how severe is their CAD or PVD? 
DVD? Um, have they had multiple interventions? Do they have stents all the way up and down their leg? Um, are they having significant angina? You know, what's the risk and benefit? When we talk about anticoagulation, doesn't it always lead back to risk versus benefit? And what's the benefit of utilizing the agent and what's the risk that we have? And I presented some of that data um, showing that people as they get older, they have that higher risk for bleeding. And for this CAD, um, PAD indication, I feel like that it's a really um, low value care and we should really not be um, utilizing it a whole lot. Now I'm oftentimes not the one prescribing and so I'm having to talk to clinicians about that and try to get it um, off of the patient's chart um, if clinicians are willing. Exactly. Anything to add on that one for you, Stephanie? No, I think Elizabeth really covered that well. Okay. She has more experience in that realm <laughs> on the outpatient setting. In the inpatient setting, I don't see it used very often for that indication, um, but I can imagine that our cardiology colleagues that are in like the alternate hospital from where I work are probably having this conversation. And I would mimic, again, what Elizabeth said about risk versus benefit, and it really is, I feel like it's a little too new for us to really make the decision yet, and especially in elderly patients who aren't studied as heavily and we don't include them in a lot of the studies that are out there, I think we just, the, the jury's out still on yeah. that one. And one thing that I found interesting about this new indication is that it's 2.5 twice a day. And so now whenever I see Eloquist come over from the hospital at that dose, I'm paranoid and I make sure that they got the, the translation right, because that is a transitional problem that is easy to mix up now at this point. So. Um, any theories on why Xarelto has a higher risk of bleeding, GI bleeds? Yeah, I actually have had a theory about this, and this is my theory. This is the theory according to Elizabeth Pogge, okay? This is my theory. My theory is that if you look at Xarelto and you compare it to um, a Pixaban and um, a Divigatran, you find that it is once daily dosing. and. It, in order to provide the anti-factor 10A level activity at a once daily dosing, it actually has to have a prolonged ability to provide anti-factor 10A level activity. And so being a once daily dose agent and, and, and having that prolonged anti-factor 10A level activity, I think that that's causing that higher bleed risk for our patients. Whereas something like a Pixaban is probably not causing that same um, anti-factor 10A level activity that's prolonged and therefore not causing the same bleed rate. Do you have any theories? I do. And so um, something else to think about, which I think makes uh, Rivaroxaban a little bit different than some of our other factor 10A inhibitors and with Dabigatran, is that it has this dual elimination, which allows for this longer, prolonged anti-factor 10A activity. And so I think with that additional level of elimination, you're getting a prolonged chance of the, that bleeding happening as well. So um, something else just to throw in the ring here is that when we think about like INR with warfarin and we think about INR with the anti-factor or the factor 10A inhibitors, rivaroxaban is one of the ones that actually shows a higher INR, like if you just randomly drew it. And, and compared to some of the other uh, factor 10A inhibitors, it's not as pronounced. And so I think that that also plays a role in this as well. Granted, we don't monitor INR for rivaroxaban, and there isn't a lot of clinical utility that's been studied yet for that. I know that some retrospective analyses are looking at whether they can use INR to adjust uh, for rivaroxaban or to predict if someone's going to have a bleed. But again, there's not enough out there for us to make that determination, but that could play a role in this as well. Very good. Those are aspects I had not 
I was not aware of. I remember once I, I took a, a CE course, a live one, that, to help renew my license. You know how we all do it. And uh, there was a doctor who complained that the studies did not show that they had a sufficient half-life for once daily dosing. So I was curious if maybe they were dosing it a little higher and we have a higher peak with that medication just so that they could get it to last longer. And it was confirmed in your slides that the half-life of Xarelto was still less than Eliquis. Like, the range was even smaller. So I, th I thought that was fascinating that it tells that that may be the case. So... How are you guys feeling? Is the heart, like, pumping? No, this is great. I love this. Well, I know something else you love. So we were talking during your session about something you discovered because a lot of the direct oral anticoagulants require renal dosing. So in the clinical setting, we calculate the creatinine clearance using the ideal body weight, but you discovered something as you were evaluating the clinical trials. Absolutely. I think um, when I gave this talk, I told everybody in the room, I said, okay, if you're sleeping, if you're buying shoes, no matter what you're doing, pay attention right now. This is the one thing I want you to take away from this talk because this was really something that was really important to me when I was learning about these agents um, because I develop protocols for my clinic and I want to make sure that what I'm doing is right for the patient. And so these protocols are implemented in thousands of people and I need to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. And if you look at the phase three clinical trials for all the direct oral anticoax when they calculated the creatinine clearance they always used the croft galt equation and they always used actual body weight so i would highly suggest that if you're developing protocols for your practice that you consider or you're um, uh, calculating creatinine clearance that you always use the croft galt equation and use actual body weight um, that's true in my practice as well in the inpatient setting. Um, we have we use our electronic medical record to usually calculate creatinine clearance, and so I always I always tell my API students who are usually with me, you know, make sure that you review this and that you're doing it appropriately. And Elizabeth and I actually did uh, an evaluation of. Um, of a Pixaban dosing, and we did all that. And and granted, a Pixaban doesn't use a creatinine clearance, but we we definitely had a conversation when we were doing our data collection about how we would calculate creatinine clearance, and we did use actual body weight based on the data that was presented. Yeah, let's put in a cheap plug for our article that was published in the Senior Care Pharmacist on um, appropriate Apixaban dosing. I think it was published in the summer, and so check that out. It's a great article um, that Dr. Sabicki and I wrote together. Awesome. Go ahead and plug that in. You want to say the name again? <laughs> so um, the name of the article is, um, you know what? I think it's a Pixaban um, prescribing practices of a Pixaban in the elderly. Yes. Yes. Awesome. And then you also said in your session that a lot of um, these direct oral anticoagulants are being underdosed. Um, and then you mentioned something about it depends on indication as well, whether you dose adjust or not. Can you elaborate on that real quick? Sure. So um, within the study that Elizabeth mentioned in the article that you can read in, in the Senior Care Pharmacist, we did evaluate a Pixaban. And what's important to note is that there are different dosing regimens for prevention of stroke for atrial fibrillation and for VTE treatment. And if you think about it from a clinical pathophysiologic sense, if you have someone who has an active clot or had a PE, you really want to give them aggressive dosing of anticoagulation. When you're giving a medication for prevention of stroke, you're really doing it more on like, dare I say, prophylactic level. Um, so the doses for atrial fibrillation tend to be a little bit lower than the ones for treatment of VTE. 
but it's really important that you evaluate the patient, you evaluate their factors for apixaban. If it's for atrial fibrillation, it's their weight, it's their serum creatinine, and it's their age. Um, but when you're treating them for VTE, if you're using a Pixaban, you're not using that criteria. So you're always using a 5 milligram or 10 milligram dose um, for VTE treatment. And for a Pixaban and atrial fibrillation, we're either using 2.5, which is our dose suggested um, for their age, their weight, or their serum creatinine, or we're using 5 milligrams. And I just looked this up the other day that a Pixaban doesn't actually have dose recommendations for adjustments in low renal function with VTE. It actually says that you can use it um, at any um, renal function for VTE. Yeah, and one other clarification on that too, if you really read into the package insert for all of the factor 10 a inhibitors, they'll say they weren't evaluated in creatinine clearance less than 25 or 30, depending on which one it is. So you really go into this clinical judgment zone when someone does have reduced renal clearance in any of these, with any of these agents for any indication. Agreed. I do, however, still see a lot of um, dialysis clinics just use Eliquis. So I, I'm feeling more and more comfortable with it. So. Yes. Yeah, I talked about the, there's a lot of post-hoc data looking at Eliquis and hemodialysis and the fact that it's pretty safe in that patient population. So I just finished a class on pharmacogenomics, right? So I was just curious, based on, based on the pharmacokinetics and everything of these drugs, what medication do you think has the highest risk of having a pharmacogenomic interaction? Well, that's a great question that we prepared, and I prepared ahead of time. And I actually, I just finished a pharmacogenomics course as well through one of our sister organizations, and um, it was a fantastic experience. So when this question was presented, I went right to PharmGKB. If you've never used it, go to the website. It's free to use. You can type in the medications, and it will give you levels of warnings or levels of evidence for pharmacogenomic potential interactions or things you need to look out for. So I did a little bit of research, and dabigatran seems to be the one with the most issues with pharmacogenomic interactions, but um, it's a level three and a level four um, recommendation, so it's not based, we're not doing anything with that at this time. It's really under investigation. Um, also with Apixaban, there's some data about CYP3A5 um, polymorphisms. So something just to keep in mind as we move forward, but I think we really need some more data before we can make decisions about that. Absolutely. I just figured with the, the double prodrug activity of Dibigatran, that, that's probably the one most likely to have some interactions and some concerns. But yeah, like you said, there's we still need plenty of research in that area. So you guys shared so much information, and I kind of we have more questions, and we kind of want to hold you here hostage so you can answer all of our questions. But unfortunately, we can't. But during your session, you shared. Um, some free resources for pharmacists to use um, during practice. Can you explain what those resources are? My favorite resource that I'd like to talk about is the 2018 European Guide for Use of Non-Vitamin um, K Antagonists in Clinical Practice. This guideline is phenomenal. It's free to download online. Um, it gives you recommendations if you're starting a clinic, how to educate patients. But what I really love about it is there's a really extensive drug-drug interaction guide in it that gives you specifics on what types of levels you can expect, either increasing or decreasing with different interactions. So I really love that guide. I use it all the time in my practice and it's something that I really think um, can be beneficial for all pharmacists out there. Sure, and, and we provided a few different resources through the American College of Cardiology. They have a lot of apps and really good 
PDF documents and charts and infographics that you can utilize. But one of my favorite things, and maybe this is a selfish plug as well, is um, using things like Twitter and social media. I'm a huge, I have like a hashtag Doac nerd, which I've changed because I have I have issues with terminology. So um, I, I'm calling them Dabiers now because it's the first letter of each of their name and it's got a, a spoof on SNL there. So if you see hashtag Dabiers, it's probably me. Um, but I love using social media to interact with the different cardiology organizations. I am a huge fan of AtriumRx through the University of Maryland. They do a fantastic job summarizing a lot of the data that comes out. And so I would really highly encourage people who are interested and want up-to-date information to utilize all resources that are there. And if you're on social media, you can follow me, Steph Zabicki. <laughs> and we like the American College of Cardiology's website, and they have a lot of cool mobile apps that you can utilize as well. And then shout out to the podcast right here um, at Senior Rx Radio. But um, I like to listen to Medscape Cardiology, but there's tons of great podcasts out there as well. Absolutely. And so just kind of in closing, I just wanted to say that um, anticoagulation is something I, I could talk with you guys all day on. Like, this is fantastic. So thank you so much for coming. But also, I think as consultant pharmacists in the skilled nursing realm, I don't. I think we could be doing so much more because as you touched upon in your, in your presentation today, like, there's so many different dosing protocols and so many different moving parts in how to dose these. And I think a lot of pharmacists were worried that the post-warfare era would take that away from us, that we wouldn't have the anticoagulation needs of a pharmacist, but it's still even more relevant than it was before. And so there's so much more that we as pharmacists need to do when we look, when people come into a skilled nursing, we have to keep that in mind. As soon as you see an anticoagulant, look for the indication, make sure it's dosed right, do all your due diligence every time. So thank you once again for coming. It's so awesome to have you guys here. Thank you for having us. I really enjoyed being here today. Thank you so much. Go Senior Rx. Yeah, Woo! and big ups to Midwestern University, College of Pharmacy Glendale. All right, we love Midwestern. <laughs>